Yeah, I'm Clark. Uh, I am one of the members of the Atlanta Community Press Collective. Today we're going to be speaking about what's been going on in Atlanta since the arrest last weekend. But just for a recap, tell us how this week of action started in the forest and about the police repression. Uh, yeah, so on the 4th, uh, basically that was the first day of the week of action. Um, activists gathered at a park nearby Wielani People's Park. Uh, this park is called Gresham Park. Uh, it got up to about 500 people. Um, there were some speeches at Gresham Park. And then they marched uh, along a bike path to uh, enter into Wielani People's Park and sort of reclaimed uh, the park. Uh, had one last round of uh, chants, um, I will protect this land, and then broke off and, and started setting up uh, camps and, you know, all the autonomous infrastructure that's needed uh, for the week of action. Uh, and then later that day, kicked off the uh, music festival, um, which was held in the RC field, which is uh, right next to um, Wielani People's Park or the main entrance to Wielani People Park. Uh, so that went off without a hitch. I think about five to 700 people were there. Um, I, actually, I heard as high as a thousand uh, that first night. And then uh, Sunday morning, the uh, the fifth uh, starts off uh, right where we ended at noon uh, with uh, the music festival, a uh, huge bouncy castle in the middle of the RC field kind of sets the tone for most of the day. Uh, Music festival continues on, gets up to about a thousand people again. And then at about five o'clock, uh, a group of around 200 individuals started to gather near the bouncy castle, uh, wearing an assortment of black block, camo block, and some people in, in normal clothes. Uh, they depart the RC field and head over to the entrance of the Cop City construction site. Um, which is, uh, I guess needs to be said sort of geographically. Uh, a significant distance away from where um, the uh, the festival is being held. Um, it, it's about a 25 to 45 minute walk, kind of depending on which route you take and uh, what the train is like on that route. Uh, so they get to the entrance of the construction site uh, and the construction equipment there is burned and uh, then they break off and sort of go back into the woods uh, about 45 minutes after the events at the construction uh, entrance uh, police started to enter um, the RC field uh, affecting several arrests before pulling back uh, and then another group of police entered Wilani People's Park doing the same thing uh, and then uh, once uh, a little while later once again, police entered RC Field, this time with a uh, armored vehicle uh, with an LRAT on it. And uh, at that point, went into the forest, launching tear gas and, and arresting several more people. Uh, the music festival went on this, uh, while all of this was happening until dusk. 
Uh, and then, um, basically police negotiated, uh, or activists negotiated with police to let those with cars leave. Uh, they did so. And then there was a small group remaining, um, who after some time were allowed to get on uh, a bus that was called for them by other activists. Uh, and so nobody who was at the music festival was arrested. And I think that sums up <laughs> those two days. And how many people are now facing domestic terrorism charges and have been arrested? There are 41 people charged with domestic terrorism charges. There is one individual who has two domestic terrorism charges. So 41 individuals, 42 charges of domestic terrorism. And how many arrests last weekend? Uh, so there, there's a couple interesting points. There were 35 people detained uh, over the course of, of Sunday evening. Um, and uh, a little after midnight, APD released that number and said 35 detained, which at the time was interesting because it's not usually the language they, they use. Um, and then about 45 minutes uh, later, they released 12 individuals. Uh, so they ended up taking to jail and charging 23 individuals with uh, domestic terrorism that night. A lot of people on social media are saying that the police are specifically targeting out-of-town people for arrest, specifically for the purpose of manufacturing the perception that only out-of-town people are coming to the protests. What would you say to that? So of the 23 people who were arrested on Sunday night, um, 21 were from out of state. Uh, the 12 individuals, one of the lawyers uh, during the bond hearings for the, the, the folks who were arrested um, made mention that the police had let go uh, people who were from Atlanta. Um, we have talked to, at this point, one of those uh, people who was let go. They weren't able to give a hard number of how many people were from Atlanta, but it was a, it was more than just, you know, a couple. Um, so it, it does seem like police at that point of those 12 were letting go. Um, as far as when they affected arrest, I don't think there would have been a way for them to know who was local and who was individual or who was local and who was out of state. But uh, they certainly uh, seem to have let go anyone who was local to continue that narrative. We saw reports that they were screening people's IDs, checking to see where they were from, etc., which, again, just makes these domestic terrorism charges seem even more ludicrous. For sure, yeah. Uh, and, and it should be stressed, again, how, how far the music festival is from, from the Cop City construction site. And so when they came in, uh, essentially what they did is anyone who ran got targeted. And, you know, if, if, if somebody is running at you with an AR-15, it is a natural instinct, I would say, to try to get away from that. Um, their justification uh, in, in, in the bail hearings uh, for their arrest was, you know, they had mud on their clothes. And it should be said that the day before the week of action, there was a tornado warning and a massive storm that came through. So mud was everywhere. It was, you know, sort of unavoidable, no matter where you were in that forest to get, get mud on, on your clothing. Uh, I think I probably still have mud on my clothes days later. So, it, and, and then the arrest of the, the legal observer, there, there were a bunch of very odd things that when they were happening, we were like, certainly they're not going to charge these people with domestic terrorism. 
because of how insane this is. Uh, but they did indeed go that route. A lot of people are arguing that these charges are not designed to stick, but they're just designed to chill dissent, to scare people away from coming out to protest and hinder people from organizing. Yeah, and it, so that is um, uh, the, the clergy letter the next day and several other um, sort of uh, press conferences have, have brought up the fact that these domestic terrorism charges are, are simply intended to, to chill free speech. Uh, the clergy letter specifically calls for an independent investigation into the use of these charges for that purpose. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I think the more this is happening, the, the more, you know, the general public are, are, are seeing sort of how these charges are being used and, and their uh, repressive nature. But it's interesting, this also doesn't seem to be a strategy that is working because so many people have come out over the last week, hundreds of people in the rain, they're coming out, they're protesting, we're seeing young folks, families, children, all types of people out on the streets of Atlanta. Through all of these demonstrations uh, and, and the press conferences and then uh, Thursday night, uh, the big the big rally in March, all the way to the the youth rally yesterday, it's largely comprised of of local people, and the narrative that that this is just out of state people is entirely false. Um, but you know, this the city is doing as as much as it can to try to combat that narrative. So let's just dive into this week of action. So March six on Monday, clergy go before the city council. They have a press conference. A lot of really amazing statements are made. Let's talk about it. Yeah, so Monday uh, at noon, um, started a press conference for clergy. Um, they were presenting a letter to city council signed at, at that point by over um, 200 other clergy. I, I've not heard an updated count. I'm sure that number has just increased from there. Uh, so they held, hosted a press conference. Uh, during that press conference, um, that was the first time that the clergy called for land back. Um, and uh, Miko Shaban Colonel, uh, the spiritual leader of the, the Muscogee Creek Nation, uh, essentially said that the Muscogee were going to come come back uh, and steward this land um, in community with the legacy Black residents. Uh, so they, they have this press conference and then they go into City Hall, deliver uh, public comment, um, uh, several of the clergy were able to deliver sort of lengthier public comment um, sessions. One in particular, Kiana Jones, had a very fiery um, public comment. Um, usually our city council members do not pay attention during public comment. They will leave. They will go get food. Um, two in particular do not, uh, Dustin Hillis and, and Mary Norwood. Um, and when Kiana Jones was speaking, all of them paid attention, which was a you know, as somebody who covers city council every week, that was a very interesting and, and sort of eye-opening experience and, and showed the power of her speech. Um, so that was Monday. There there was a Purim uh, service in the forest. And that was, uh, you know, throughout that day, um, people started to move back into the forest and then life really returned. Um, and it, it should also be said that, uh, you know, Sunday night when everyone got kicked out of the forest 
this it, uh, many local activists opened up their homes to people who were from out of state and didn't have anywhere to go. And so that wouldn't be possible, you know, without a, a vast network of support locally. Well, the next day we saw demonstrations outside of corporations that are economically tied to or are supporting Cop City. And that's where we saw law enforcement really kind of step up harassment of activists. Tell us more about what happened. Yes, that is the beginning of a very, um, really open campaign of police repression um, against <laughs> First Amendment speech. Uh, so there was a nonviolent direct action that left out of Woodruff Park, um, which is pretty much a, a very common like uh, source point for, for protests uh, here in the city. Um, it's where our Occupy um, happened. Uh, so the protest leaves out there are about 50 individuals. They uh, target three buildings, um, the Georgia Pacific building, AT&T building, and um, the GSU, uh, one of the GSU buildings, Georgia State University. Um, they leave out and there isn't really much of a visible police presence. Uh, and then turn about, uh, they, they get to the Georgia Pacific building and leave there. And at that point, uh, about a hundred police officers to 120 police officers start marching beside the, the, the activists. Some are carrying assault rifles. Some are carrying like non lethal rifles. All of them have their gas masks ready. It is a very, very blunt show of force. Um, the activists had, had planned for this and had set up some ground rules before going in that nobody would essentially violate. Uh, any laws that they would not jaywalk, they would wait uh, at, at, you know, stop walks when uh, the hand was red and there were no arrests. But this was really like the start of, of how the rest of this week would go. Um, it should also be said, Monday night, there was a comedy festival that was scheduled to happen in the forest. And um, about six o'clock, word starts going through camp that there is a massive police presence gathering um, across from the, the entrance to the construction site. Um, there were reports of, of, at that point, like 50 uh, police vehicles. Um, from what we understand, it got up to 120 uh, police officers uh, on Key Road, ready to come in. And everyone was afraid they were going to come in. And then they didn't. Uh, we found out kind of later on or figured out later on that they saw this festival, this comedy, or they saw this comedy event in the forest and assumed that that was going to be a cover for some sort of Sunday night-esque activity. And of course, it was not. And the comedy festival was canceled for sort of unrelated reasons. Um, the organizer had to, I think, got sick or something like that and, and, and couldn't make it. So police just sort of slinked away um, without doing anything. But it was uh, an eye-opening and, and, and scary moment in the forest for a lot of people. Uh, which brings us to Tuesday. Um, that was a another nonviolent direct action, again, leaving out of Woodruff. This was a smaller uh, group. I think at its peak, it got up to about 36 individuals. Um, and their game plan was to split up into three groups and essentially just leaflet the area with, you know, information about um, the Cop City project, the funders, um, 
the city council role in the whole thing. Uh, so me and uh, a few other media folks followed one group in particular. They went and, and passed out leaflets at uh, a MARTA station. Uh, they broke up into three additional groups. And each group had its own police presence following it. And, and you could you know tell that they were ready and, and willing to, to arrest anyone uh, for any cause that they could come up with. Um, they pass out leaflets for about 45 minutes, uh, and then they gather on a sidewalk across from um, one of our malls. And uh, that is when police come up and read a dispersal order telling them that it is illegal and against city ordinance for them to congregate on the sidewalk and block the right of way. Um, again, they, they had expected something like this. So they had a conversation, they formed into a single file line and, uh, crossed over, uh, the other side of the street, which had a little bit more space and just stayed in a single file line so that people could, could walk through and police were unable to find a reason to arrest them. Um, while this was happening, uh, Colonel Michael Chabon, uh, had written a letter that essentially... <laughs> was an eviction letter uh, to the city of Atlanta for the Wheelani Forest. Um, so at that mall, um, our mayor, Andre Dickens, was having a meeting. Um, he, he's a president of, of a board. Um, and so they were, they were meeting in some, some office space there. And uh, several members of the uh, Muscogee Creek Nation um, and Kamau uh, Franklin of Community Movement Builders, they were able to find the mayor and deliver this eviction letter. Um, and he essentially bolted out the door. Uh, a moment of, I guess, high comedy, very Ted Wheeler-esque uh, act on his part. Yes, uh, very strong. Uh, we, we love seeing mayors run away from people. There was also a noise demonstration that happened in support of people that had been arrested that were at DeKalb county jail which is uh right outside of atlanta they held a noise demo outside of the jail where uh these 23 arrestees are currently being held or at that point it was 22 one one individual had um was able to be bonded out the illegal observer uh so they they hosted a noise demo it was attended fairly well for for a jail noise demo i think there was something like 75 to 100 uh people um at one point, some uh, a prisoner lights some toilet paper on fire and like pushes it out the window, um, as I, I'm assuming some sort of sign that they appreciate what was happening. Uh, they were projecting, um, you know, slogans onto buildings nearby so that people could see and read, uh, you know, stop cop city propaganda or stop cop city slogans and 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 all of that. Uh, and again, no arrests were affected that day, although there was a very visible um, sheriff's office uh, presence. Uh, and they were, again, ready to arrest anyone who steps, uh, I guess, out of line. And the next day, there was a protest outside of Norfolk Southern, which is the corporation behind the recent disaster in East Palestine, and is also one of the major funders of Cop City in Atlanta. Yes, there was a small protest put on by Extinction Rebellion outside of the Norfolk Southern building. Uh, it was, I, I want to say, something like 15 protesters. And again, an entirely overblown police response. The, the whole thing lasted maybe 20 minutes. 
but police were there far, far before and for some time after uh, this protest, um, ready to quash, you know, anything that might happen. It should be mentioned that earlier that week, Norfolk Southern was uh, visited by um, a very tiny group of, of activists who read a letter to the CEO, Alan Shaw, in the lobby, um, calling for him to divest from Cop City. Uh, so this was the second time that, that that space had been sort of targeted by activists. Yeah, it's been interesting. I don't know if the mainstream press has connected the fact that Norfolk Southern is a funder of Cop City. I haven't seen that being tweeted or written about, per se, in some of the more mainstream articles. The, the mainstream press does not often talk about who funds uh, Cop City, but Norfolk Southern is uh, on the quarterly financials um, for APF for uh, $100,000. So they have contributed $100,000 to the public safety first campaign that APF is putting on, which is going to, uh, the campaign is going to Cop City and, and some other things, but um, they are a, a contributor. Well, let's talk about what happened that night. This was one of the larger demonstrations that happened, hundreds of people out against Cop City. Yeah, I've heard uh, a wide range of numbers. Um, I, I, I would say up to about 400 uh, people partook in, in this particular action. So um, at six o'clock at the uh, Martin Luther King uh, National Historic Site, which sits uh, across the street from Ebenezer Baptist Church, um, <laughs> uh, Black-led um, organizations, uh, put on a, a rally. Uh, so this, I would say, was the, the attendance of this rally, I, I, I think, was an accurate reflection of Atlanta demographics. Um, it was definitely the most diverse um, rally that, that I've seen to that point. Um, in it, a number of groups called for their support of the Defend the Forest movement called for the dropping of charges. Uh, and this entire time, you know, more police presence was sort of cropping up all around um, where this was being held. Police had from Sandy Springs, which is about um, 40 minutes uh, from, from where we were, uh, they had brought in an entire bus full of police officers. Uh, in and their gear. Uh, and then the march set off. Um, at first, they did not take to the streets uh, because there was a rumor that was going around that the police were going to try to effect arrest if they did or issue a dispersal order if they did. Um, eventually, they they did the, you know, it's, it's very hard to control a crowd that size. Um, so eventually, they did step out onto the street um, I believe there was uh, there was a not a, there was a police blockade uh, in the street that sort of forced them back on the sidewalk um, just before they reached their target destination, which was the 191 Peachtree Building, um, where the Atlanta Police Foundation is housed. Uh, so, for I would say a couple hours, uh, maybe maybe just under a couple hours, they they sat in front of the Atlanta Police Foundation building and chanted. Um, there was another series of speeches and the entire time they were doing this, they were standing in front of a wall of riot cops. 
at one point, the door to the Atlanta Police Foundation opens, and inside you can see even more riot cops. So they 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 were ready. Um, they had boarded up the the windows to the 191 building, and it, it seemed like they they were looking for an excuse uh, to start arresting people, and zero excuse was given. They uh, continued to just assert First Amendment rights um, and speech without, you know, anything else. And I, I think that was a sort of very powerful moment um, in the face of, of, of that much police, I, I would say, threat. And this was organized by groups like Community Movement Builders and other organizations that are local to Atlanta. Uh, yes, and what was sort of the feeling on the streets? There's hundreds of people out. What were people talking about? What was the vibe per se? Uh, constantly, you know, while, while these demonstrations were happening, people were driving by and honking uh, their support. Um, people seemingly were pretty receptive to um, the flyers that were being handed out or the pamphlets that were being handed out. I didn't, I didn't pick up on much hostility, um, which was, a you know, uh, not really surprising, but it was, I would say, reassuring, I guess. Uh, so the feeling on the streets was was seemingly one of support. Um, there were a few GSU students who were kind of annoyed that they, they couldn't work their way into the building that they were in. And that was about the extent of, of antipathy from the, the general public that I saw. So the next day, the editor of Truth Out was harassed in their car by Atlanta police leaving a demonstration. Uh, let's get into that. And also the same day, this is when more information came out about the independent autopsy on uh, Tortuguita. Let's dig into this. When everyone leaves these nonviolent direct actions, they are kind of followed by police. Um, this is the first one that I, I was not able to attend this, this particular one. Uh, but Candace um, was followed by police, uh, got into um, their vehicle with uh, a, somebody else was driving and then they had a, a, another passenger in the back seat. Um, going back to the night before, police had, had begun pulling over uh, people leaving uh, these uh, leaving these protests to try to identify them. Um, I believe I believe everyone that, that previous night was let go with just a warning. Um, and same in this situation with Candace, but uh, she was pulled over and, and held uh, for, for a little while while they tried to identify everyone in the car. Um, she was eventually let go. I, I, so Candace had to switch uh, with the driver who had, uh, she didn't have her current license with her. She had an expired license. So that's why the driver was no longer allowed to drive that vehicle and Candace had to take over. Uh, but it, it was very emblematic of, of the sort of repression and, and uh, antipathy towards First Amendment protected activities that we've seen the rest of the week. And then this independent autopsy hits the news. Tell us what the independent autopsy said about the murder of Tortuguita. Yeah, so this, it was very interesting that this came out in the AJC, which um, the owner, Cox Media, um, the owner of Cox Media, um, is the head fundraiser for the Cop City Project. So their coverage of, of Cop City's, you know, been fairly slanted. They've, they've got a new beat writer who's, uh, I, guess I would say, a little bit more 
uh, balanced than, than previous coverage, but uh, they published a story um, with some, some of the findings of a, uh, the, the private medical examiner's report. Uh, and essentially they, they, the medical examiner determined that Tortuguita had been seated in a cross-legged position uh, when they were killed. And at some point uh, during that, uh, during the shooting, they had their hands up, um, sort of palms facing inward, and were were shot through through their hands. Um, so that makes some interesting uh, questions um, regarding you know the, the the story that the Georgia Bureau of Investigations is putting forth. Uh, Belkistran, uh, Manuel or Tortilla's mother, um, uh, uh, Manny or would like to sort of, uh, meditate in the morning. And, and so it is her belief that he was actually in the middle of like a morning meditation when this, this started to happen. And, you know, one would assume that this was a, a fear reaction to having, um, to having guns pointed at you. How has law enforcement responded to this new information? Because the other thing that's been going on is that Tortuguita's family, they have been demanding that more information be released, that police release all of the video they have and anything related to the case, and the police are actually refusing to do so. And our understanding is currently there's a lawsuit that's been launched around that. Correct. They are uh, suing them. The, the family is actually going to have a press conference tomorrow morning as well, uh, talking about that and and talking about uh, more information for the medical examiner's report. Um, I'm not sure if the Emmy's report will come out publicly, uh, but it, there will be reporting on it. Um, the establishment, other than the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, has not said anything Um from what I have seen, uh, the GBI did release a series of six tweets uh, that essentially said that they are not responsible for the the original medical examiners um, or, or the state's medical examiners' uh, results. That is uh, that was conducted by the Cab County uh, Coroner's Office, um, and continued to to say that they are. Uh, they are not releasing information to maintain some sort of neutrality and and um, not influence the recollection of of individuals while they are still conducting this investigation. Uh, so they they've kept to the same script that they have this entire time. Their narrative just continues to collapse, and this information from the autopsy just continues that. Yeah, there's there's very little ground left in that narrative, and they they seem you know stuck to it. So the next day, there was a police raid on this environmental center. Tell us what happened and how and why the police targeted uh, this place and how it relates to the wider protests. Yeah, so there were there were actually several offsite locations. Um, throughout the week of action um, that were uh, engaging in, in, in different sort of infrastructure. Um, Leaf served as a medic space and uh, like a, a shelter space for people who maybe were afraid that police would come back into the forest and arrest them. And so that's why you had, you know, these people camping out here. 
they were doing so with the permission of the property owner. And uh, early on into the week, uh, police began uh, essentially monitoring what was happening at that site. Um, so they 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 were looking for a reason to come in. Is is what it seems like. Um, and, uh, they were able to get a search warrant, um, for the property on sun, uh, Saturday morning. Um, uh, so the people who were sleeping there woke up to, they said something like no less than 20 guns pointed at them. Um, a loudspeaker told everyone to get out of their tents. Some people were not allowed to like put on clothes. Some people were ID'd, others were not. It was sort of, it, it was kind of a haphazard um, experience from from the stories that I, I have seen um, or have the reporting that we've had. Um, they, the individual who was arrested, um, that they were arrested for an outstanding warrant, um, a, a traffic ticket, so a failure to appear warrant in Cherokee County. Uh, that was not, uh, I believe, their intended purpose for being there. Uh, but when they did um, identify this person, they, they found their outstanding warrant. So they were transported to um, uh, ACDC or the Atlanta City Detention Center. Uh, and they will be transported from there up to Cherokee County to deal with that warrant. But the Atlanta Solidarity Fund um, is already working on that process. So they told activists they were allowed to leave. Uh, and then buses brought them to another offsite location. Um, and uh, there they were, you know, fed, uh, given a little bit of shelter and warmth. And um, that's where all of the stories that we've heard were collected. But while they were sort of recovering from, from their experience, APD was engaged in what they say is a search. But, you know, from the, the photos that have come out, it, it seemed more like an intended ransacking um, you know, I, I don't know why you would need to break out uh, windows in an RV to do a search warrant, but APD certainly felt like they needed to. Uh, and then the medic tent uh, was a picture that, that we posted, um, just, you know, destroyed and, and everything sort of <laughs> broken apart um, or shoved over. It, it seems very odd for a search warrant if it was, you know, that the point was actually to search and not to just get some sort of reprisal for not being able to arrest anyone uh, during the rest of the week. And tell us about the food autonomy conference that was also going on at the same time. Uh, yeah, I've heard uh, no, no problems from the food autonomy festival. I was not able to make it out to uh, any of those events. I had some friends uh, who were able to, uh, and they said uh, the parking lot was packed uh, yesterday. So it, it seemingly had a, a pretty good attendance. Uh, and that actually wraps around until tomorrow, uh, Monday the 13th. And there was also a march organized by young children and families. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so there's there um, in East Atlanta Village, uh, which is uh, a couple miles north of the forest, there have been a few of these these youth rallies. Um, and this was the most large, uh, largely attended one um, to date. Uh, families um, with children who uh, have studied or there's a preschool right there and their curriculum or not a preschool, I'm sorry, there is a school right there uh, and their curriculum is uh, essentially forest defense. And so they are a large part of this. 
um, they put together a rally um, marching through the, the streets of East Atlanta. Um, there was no police presence uh, that day. At, at one point, I think, yeah, just at one point, a police uh, cruiser drove by right before um, organizers held a press conference about the, the search warrant at leave earlier that day. But uh, the... The, ch the, the children's rally portion of the day went off without a hitch and again represents, you know, people from Atlanta supporting the movement and not, you know, supporting Cop City. And also Tortuguita's family continues to remain very active doing press conferences, giving statements. They also recently spread their ashes in the Bolani forest. Yeah. So uh, this morning at about eight o'clock, um, the, the families, so that, would, that would be um, mother, Tort's father, and Tort's brother, Daniel, um, had a ceremony um, with a, a couple members of, of the clergy coalition who, who had that press conference and, and wrote that letter on Monday. Um, the uh, Tort's parents are very religious and this very, very important to them. Um, so there was a... a quiet memorial service that went on for about a half hour or so um, on this very cold and, and rainy day. And as it was wrapping up, there was a, a really cool moment where the sun sort of shined a little brighter, even though it was raining, but the rain started coming down even, even harder um, as they were preparing um, towards ashes and, and, and putting them in the bag that they would use to, to transport them. Um, it, sort of a very surreal moment. Uh, and from there, uh, Belkis uh, walked to several sites in the forest, um, scattering ashes and, and um, having some songs and, and uh, saying some words about her child. And then we ended uh, at the location in the forest where Tort was killed, um, which activists have turned into essentially a, a shrine uh, of remembrance to Tortuguita and had one final scattering of ashes there. Um, Tor's father said some words, Tor's brother said some words, and then we made our way back to the parking lot um, where the mic, the proverbial mic was opened up uh, to anyone um, to share their reflections. So uh, it was a very touching uh, moment. Um, and I think hopefully brought a lot of closure to, to the activists who, who lost a dear friend. Well, what are your thoughts now looking back on the week of action? It seems like this really shows that the movement has staying power. There's lots of people, even outside of the activist hardcore, that are really in support of this, that are coming out. And also, it doesn't seem like the police are making any headway. They're not really generating support. If anything, they continue to turn people away from this project and anger folks at their draconian tactics. What are your thoughts? I would certainly say this is a loss for the police. Um, I, you know, I, historically, when we, we look at the state, they, they really only know one thing, and that is violence and escalation. And uh, fortunately for this movement, it is very resilient and it knows that that is how the police are going to respond. And it takes those actions and it uses them uh, against the police in, in order to bolster support. And so um, every time there is an escalation, um, it, it really just continues to reinforce and, and grow the movement. 
Uh, even the arrests on on Tuesday, you know, with them arresting, uh, well, they arrested one um, uh, legal observer who was wearing um, legal observer, you know, clothing, and then there was allegedly another legal observer who was not wearing the hat or shirt, um, but their lawyer testified that they were a legal observer as well. But the one who was properly dressed worked for the Southern Poverty Law Center, and I, you know, it is typically not a good idea to pick a fight with them. You don't want to be on the wrong side of the Southern Poverty Law Center. That usually means that you are the bad guy. Uh, so that was a particular loss for them. Uh, and then, you know, all of these images that are coming out from the week show this massive police response to these nonviolent direct actions. Um, and I think that was very cleverly done on there on the end of the activists um, who kind of knew this was going to happen and and knew that they could use it to point to um, how the police don't need more resources. Like if you just look, they are obviously able to field an overwhelming force of officers for you know something as benign as passing out leaflets. Aren't the police just setting themselves up for a massive lawsuit? Uh, I. <laughs> Yes. Um, so where things go from here, um, I, I would say first that typically after the week of action, there is what the activists call a week of repression. Um, and that is the expectation that this week uh, upcoming will be no different. Um, in past weeks, that is when police have engaged in larger raids and sweeps of the forest. Um, there have been rumors uh, and I, I've seen the evidence for, for these. So I, I, I do understand um, their likelihood um, that RICO charges uh, will be forthcoming. So that is something that is expected during the week of repression. Um, and again, will you know, represent an escalation of the, of the police or of the state's repression of the movement. Um, I, I, we have seen um, this last week, uh, transition to nonviolent direct actions. And I, I think that will become more commonplace um, as time goes on. But, you know, the, the movement seems very nimble and able to respond to changing situations and uh, has a large toolkit of, of things uh, that they can use uh, to protest and seem pretty apt at, at pulling out whatever suits the moment. So I think what this next week of repression brings will kind of dictate what they do moving, uh, what the activists do moving forward. So just in closing, how can people follow your work? Uh, yeah. So uh, again, I am with the Atlanta community press collective. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Atlanta underscore press. Um, and then on Instagram, we are uh, ATL press collective and you can read our blog. Uh, we're our longer form reporting is done at uh, atlpresscollective.com. It go lang, oh man. Follow on an AK, holy when I pray on those who pray on those who pray for better ways. AK, lang, lang. Came from the same bloodline as Andres. Handed on a boy in a tactical vest. Ready for whatever type of shit we catch next. Yay, never been afraid of no badge, bruh. Two police is a matchup. I just came to make it all even because the field uneven and we living in the last, bruh. A rebel of a devil in a dodger hat. They killing our people, we go hard for that. One, eight, nine, eight till we finish with that. No little pretty face, fool, you should go hit you with that. Bang, bang, oh man. Power to the people. Bang, bang, oh man. Power to the people. Bang, bang, oh man. Power to the people. Bang, bang. Power to the people. Bang, bang. Power to the people.
I am bum down the fight party Elon bring them on what you thought this was a little okie doke a little whoopty whoop cool story bro this ain't no motherfucking joke and this is overthrow the recognition the ignition and the yes control and I already know I'm better than a bunch of these rats I don't spend a bunch of time trying to convince you with that but that pat 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 put a hole in your brain throw a little bit of wisdom fill the back up again it's like ring oh man welcome to the party I can't call nobody when these banks is trying to rob me fuck it light a match yeah. fuck it throw a match yeah. fuck it let it burn yeah. fuck it homie rat Okay, welcome back for another week. We have lots to talk about. We are diving in instead of doing the thing we usually do, which is have a huge discussion about what we're going to talk about and then go back and restate everything. But as we as we're meeting here first, uh, Silicon Valley is crashing. Apparently, it has a bank, uh, which I didn't know about. <laughs> News to me, but it's not doing well. So there's a Silicon Valley bank and it crashed. So let's talk about <laughs> yeah. what happens and what that means. So Silicon Valley Bank is not a bank probably most people have ever heard of uh, because it's not a bank that deals with consumers. It's a business bank, right? So it it's an investment bank, largely. It loans money to tech startups. And most tech startups in the Bay Area or that are Bay Area based um, get at least a a chunk of their initial funding from Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so it's huge. It's a massive, many multi-billion dollar institution. I mean, it's, it's a massive organization. And it crashed. And it crashed in 48 hours. And the reason that it crashed was because it couldn't raise enough capital to be able to collateralize the loans it already taken out. So there's a lot of things there that are really important to kind of get to in this discussion. First is... How does Silicon Valley Bank be end up in a position where they can't borrow money, right? And there's a number of sort of elements to that, which are sort of indicative of larger dynamics. The first is, well, very obviously, if what they were doing continued to be profitable, or if investors thought that the tech industry was going to continue to be profitable, Silicon Valley Bank would not have had issues raising capital, but they did. And what that says is that all of these layoffs, Amazon, Meta, you know, Google, all of these layoffs actually do indicate financial issues in the tech industry. They're not just about, as these tech companies are saying, all we're doing is we're 
bringing our workforce down to the size that we need it to be because of automation. But if this is true, if Silicon Valley Bank crashed because they couldn't raise capital, that's not the reason why. The reason why is they're not making enough money to continue to have that many people on staff when before they were. And so you can see this with Twitter, right? Very, very clearly, like to become profitable. Yeah, but Twitter Twitter is run by Elon Musk, who's an idiot. Yes, but the numbers, <laughs> but the numbers actually make sense. So he says, to be profitable, we need to cut expenses this amount. That means we need to fire 85% of our staff. And that's is that what's what happening in other companies, though? It's not that drastic everywhere else. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But also these people, they Silicon Valley and like Elon Musk and all these CEOs, like whatever, Zuckerberg, they have so, 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 so much money. You know what mm. I mean? Them laying off workers because they're not making enough money is just so greedy. It's like, hey, yeah. there's no more. Cr- you can't even have the crumbs anymore. Now they're picking up the crumbs from the floor <laughs> that they were throwing at people. So it's just like, you don't need to lay off people. You obviously have enough money. But also, can I just say that the Silicon Valley bank existing should not happen? Silicon Valley does (laughs) nothing, okay? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to sound like one of those people who doesn't sound like they're smart or reads the news, but I do. And I just think that if you don't grow anything that I can eat or like provide something that has value to humanity other than making children have like psychological disorders as a result of your feeds, maybe you should go bankrupt. I don't know. That's just my personal opinion, but please go back to the smart stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah is, this, is this a bubble? Is this a bubble we're seeing? Is this a bubble <clears throat> bursting? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Maybe. I, so I think it's a little bit different in the sense that, okay, so in the 1990s, when we saw the tech bubble burst, the, that was a result of sort of a dynamic of investment, which was being driven by low interest rates. So Alan Greenspan was in charge of the Federal Reserve back then. Alan Greenspan was a, you know, acolyte of Ayn Rand. And so when Alan Greenspan was running the Federal Reserve Bank, the interest rates were like zero, pretty much 0.25%, something really, really low. And so it was very, very, very easy for companies to borrow money and then use that money to engage in stock buybacks. And so a lot of the late 90s tech crash actually happened for this really absurd reason. So all over the United States now, We have literally millions of miles of fiber optic lines laid in tubes under our streets all over the country. Any of us that were alive in the late 1990s probably remembers them digging trenches along the sides of the roads, and that was to install fiber optic cable. And then we didn't use it. So why did they install it? And this is kind of the absurd. I mean, this is like whenever we hear of absurdities like this, these are all reasons why capitalism is ridiculous. But In this scenario, what happened is, say, a company like Sprint um, would borrow money. They would use that money to then install fiber optic lines. They would use that fiber optic line to then say, we've got this many miles of fiber optic line. We're anticipating making this amount of money per mile. Therefore, our future profits at this point 20 years from now are going to be this mysteriously large number. Oh my God, are you saying that they make everything up? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they made they made it up and then built investments on it. And then when everyone figured out that's what was going on, they realized that we had something like hundreds of percents more capacity, internet capacity than we needed at the time. And so the entire industry could crash and the internet could still survive. But now this this is different. I mean, one of the questions that we're going to potentially come up against here is whether or not tech companies can crash. 
So you take Twitter. Okay, cool. Twitter can crash. Like Twitter could crash and it wouldn't impact the internet significantly. It would impact the internet, but it wouldn't be huge. But if Google crashed or if Amazon crashed, the internet would go down. And so we now all of a sudden are faced with this problem of this structure of investment where, say, Google on the first day that Google existed on the stock market increased by value by 400%, right? So like low interest rate based investment is what drove the tech industry. But now the tech industry is serving an audience that is sizable. And so say Amazon goes down, AWS, Amazon Web Services, hosts mm-hmm. something like 40% of the internet. If Amazon- oh, that- like, why, why are people, like, that's the thing. It's like, why? By the way, if you boycott Whole Foods and Amazon, they're still making money from Amazon where, yeah. Yes, AWS, they are. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. But it's like, what? Yeah. It's like, yeah. it doesn't even make any, capitalism doesn't even make sense, like, logically speaking. Why would you do that? So the entire tech industry, and this is still the case in a lot of ways, built off this idea that investments are commodities, not the thing that's produced or the company, but the investment itself is a commodity. So when you buy a stock, you're not buying a stock to get a dividend from the company like you would have in the 1960s. You're buying a stock because you anticipate other people want to buy that stock. And so all it does is auto generate value just randomly based on demand without any actual results coming from that necessarily, right? And so what we have is we have companies that are many times the size ultimately that their revenue justifies. So even in the late 90s, say in the car industry, a company like Ford, I forget the exact number, but I think it was something like Ford was worth something like 25 times more on paper than it actually would be worth if you liquidated its assets. Yeah. So the, 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 the thing that I'm struggling with here, as I'm going to be really honest, is like money's made up. It's not real, right? Mm-hmm. And so everything that's laid on top of it is, of course, not real. My mm-hmm. question is like, wh- what's like... Maybe we should let all this just fall apart and start from scratch. Like, I know there are going to be consequences. Maybe this is speaking from a place of privilege. And I know people will lose their jobs. I've been poor. It's not great. It sucks. Um, it really is really awful not being able to have your needs met. But the part about it that, like, I think people need to, like, understand, like, with this stuff happening is that, like, this stuff is made up. Like, it's not real. The real stuff is the stuff that they're destroying, like the Atlanta mm-hmm. forest that they're trying to burn down. Mm-hmm. That's the real stuff. Like, that's the stuff mm-hmm. that we should be focusing on. So, like, I, I, was an, I, I, I was an econ major. I don't understand finance, but I do understand economics. And, and like, a lot of it is based on nonsense and lies. Like, even mm-hmm. the idea mm-hmm. of money coming from us battering, like, bartering, barter, bartering, bartering as we know it and has been explained to us, actually never existed. Like David mm-hmm. Graeber writes this book. The reason why money was created was in order for like feudal lords to fund the military. It's a coupon yes. to get people to work for the military. Mm-hmm. So it's like this, the idea of like money existing has always been to serve the state. So of mm-hmm. course, like, so when we have these conversations, like I want to have them, but I think we should also talk about the fact that this stuff is like made up. Like, you know, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, it's not mm-hmm. like real in the sense of like, things that we need to like live as humans. Like, do you know what, like, it's not like land sovereignty, which is like, yeah, we need that. We need land to, to eat. We need like a healthy environment. I guess that's the thing that I do want to bring up just because it's like, we hear about this stuff and it creates like this fear, but it's like the capitalists have created, created this world. Let's divest from it. Mm -hmm. It's so strange too, to just also think about like just billions of dollars, like, you know, like we were talking about Twitter. Just look at Tesla stock. Just like suddenly billions of dollars. just like evaporating. Not- <laughs> evaporating. Yeah. What did you say? Evaporating. What? What did you say? I missed that. Like 
literally evaporating like you know uh, like evaporating, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or people like losing consumer confidence and then you know mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. stocks dipping and just it's really weird to think about especially when that does actually have an impact sometimes on people's lives yep. negatively and mm-hmm. it's not like people are working less they're not like putting less effort into the system to push it forward which yeah and, and you just think about all of the things that, you know, we could list, you know, the fact that Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean drinking water <laughs> and they're in the midst of another water crisis because the infrastructure is still messed up. I mean, literally since we talked last time, how many more derailments have happened just because of Norfolk Southern? Well, there's been three I, in Ohio alone. Just total Not even bad. Kidding you. One of yeah, them happened in like, the middle of Cleveland. One of them happened in the middle of Cleveland. And these are the people who claim that they know what they're doing and we should just let them run things. No. Uh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like what? No, you can't even keep a train on the tracks. That's a train's job to stay on the tracks. And you can't even do that right. Yeah. Isn't that their job too? Yeah. Well, literally. Well, and so, you know, talk thinking about this in relation to finance, like why do we care about Silicon Valley Bank outside of like, you know, the internet not working anymore potentially, which mm-hmm. that's not going to be the result, but... Why should we care? Well, the reason we should care is that the dynamics that took down Silicon Valley Bank are exactly the same as the dynamics from 2008. And what that is, is an inflation of abstract value that then crashes. And so what we saw in this case, what we saw with Lehman Brothers too, and Bear Stearns, um, was a situation in which they had a lot of sort of abstract value investments. So things that weren't necessarily liquid, they were sort of investments in companies or assets or something like that. They weren't cash, right? Um, And those, they were projecting value of those assets and they were saying they're worth X amount of money in the future. Therefore, loan us this money. We'll post that asset as collateral at this value, right? So just like when you get a mortgage for a house, Mm -hmm. your house is the collateral for that loan, right? Mm -hmm. Or your car is the collateral for your car loan. When you're investing in a business that doesn't have anything yet, you have to post other collateral. So you have to give them, you have to post, say, investments that you'll give whoever's borrowing you money if you don't pay them back or assets or whatever it happens to be, right? But those are based on projected future value. So all of a sudden, if people go, hey, I don't think that's going to be worth that in 10 years, you've got to post more collateral. But what happens is in the financial industry, someone will sit there and go, hey, I don't think houses are going to increase in value by 50% in the next 10 years. And the second someone says that, the entire market crashes. But then it's like, with the stuff like that, it's like, but you still have a house to live in. Just like yeah. live in it. Like what? Like why Why do we need to make money from houses? Why does anybody? Like, it's like this whole idea where labor has been so removed from what these capitalists make money from that it's literally not even tied to work anymore. Yeah. It's just yeah. like some Lala made up land of subprime packaging to subprime of like, what is it like all the math, all the differential calculus that they're using to like trick us all. You know what I mean? And it's just like, yeah, yeah but the, the real assets, like the real things, which is like land, people, like that doesn't change just because mm-hmm. the economy crashes. We still have those real assets. So why don't we use those? Why don't we use our communities like that? Just because just because the government now says your home is worth zero dollars doesn't mean you can't live in it anymore. You can still which live is, in it. Obviously, you have to pay is, taxes, which is like 
fucked up, but you know, yeah. It's just, I, I mean, I think that's a really good point in terms yeah. of like, if we really want to have a conversation about like, you know, what is wealth and I guess the medicines or, you know, even capital in terms of like infrastructure that creates stuff and mm-hmm. like would generate wealth is probably in a holistic way we could think about like taking care of us and like the things that we need to live. I mean, capitalism is actually a very inefficient system of like oh, yeah. gen- generating that like on a scale that actually means something for the population that is actually doing the work. And it would actually be very much in our interest to create a very much different system. One that I would say is cooperative that we actually control on a very basic level. I don't know. It's just, it's just so infuriating that uh, we continue to perpetuate the system and, and, and more and more, it just seems like the, you know, the empire has no clothes. I mean, again, like I think the, the, the train thing is, Mm-hmm. really disgusting and yep. i mean literally i was listening to the radio and they were talking about how norfolk southern is under all this heat right now and I'm like oh by the way the, the next story is that another train derailed <laughs> oh just like, like, can like, you imagine what? if like one of us did that just like went around derailing trains all the time no, you be, you wouldn't exist anymore it's yeah, and then the governor of, yeah. yeah and then yeah. what and is these it, the people- governor of ohio is in the pockets in their pockets yeah, oh, yeah, they're just yeah, still yeah. out there making billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up uh, in terms of this, I think the big question is, is that one, is this going to like infection mm-hmm. within the economy going to spread <laughs> to other sectors? Like, is this going to be mm-hmm. the start of another recession? Mm-hmm. I mean, under capitalism, it's like what, every eight, 10 years, we kind of face one of these. So mm-hmm. we're kind of like due for one, I guess, is what yep. a lot of people are saying. Um, yep. yeah. And I think the other thing too, is that I was talking about this before we started recording, but one of the things that that's being said about in terms of unemployment, which uh, a lot of the stimulus and extending unemployment benefits, that's one of the things that helped some people buy uh, mm-hmm. during you know, the aftermath of the Great Recession 2008. And then also uh, during the pandemic when a lot of people were out of work, uh, especially the fact that like uh, they allowed like independent contractors and people that were gig workers to like mm-hmm. draw for unemployment. Thing that I'm hearing is that essentially if there was another recession that mm-hmm. the system hasn't uh, recouped what it put out from right. our money last time. So if there was like another mad dash for people to get benefits that it just couldn't do it and people would just mm-hmm. be out of luck. Yeah. I mean, so we've been talking about this on the show for a while. There's a dynamic that I think first thing brought up is about six months ago, but there's this dynamic during the pandemic specifically in which governments were running into a paradox, right? They had to fund consumption because if they didn't, all the economies would crash, right? Like instantaneously. Um, But they didn't have enough money to do that. And so how do you square that circle? Well, you don't. And so ultimately you end up hitting a point in which you either have to have the government go deeply, deeply, deeply into debt, which is what they're doing in China, right? Just like deeply into debt to the point where they may never recover from that. Or you have to start cutting subsidies or you do both. Now, in the United States, there is no more money for subsidies. That's not a lie. Like that's not a lie made up by Republicans. Like there is no more there is no more money. 
if there were money to be had, it would be coming at higher interest rates. And that is this like, you know, kind of self-defeating dynamic for the future. And so we end up in this situation in which there's not really a way out, right? And we combine that with the fact that all of the liquid capital in the world, most of it, got burned in 2008 in order to save capitalism from itself and hasn't recovered since then. Where's the capital going to come from? And the reality is, is that a crash this time would be much worse, right? The economy is a lot more intertwined internationally than it was in 2008. And it's a lot more financialized than it was in 2008. So just as an example, when Evergrande went down in China, right, the Chinese government bailed the company out. Evergrande's a, a massive real estate conglomerate. It would have taken the like a chunk of the Chinese economy down with it. The Chinese government bailed out that company. But to do that, they had to tell foreign investors they weren't going to get paid back. And they had to borrow a bunch of money. The government had to borrow a bunch of money to loan to this company, right? You only do that so many times. And the long-term effect of that is that foreign investors are not going to come back, at least as much as they were before. But just an example like that, you can see like 70% of the funding for that company was from overseas, right? That would not necessarily have been true in 2008. So the economy is a lot more intertwined internationally now, and therefore a lot more precarious than it was in 2008. Yeah. And like looking at it from that perspective, I do think that that's like a whole like looking at it from the state corporate perspective, which I think does make sense if we're talking about saving capitalism. But if we're talking about divesting for capitalism, what about other solutions? Like maybe land back, like land, Mm -hmm. like, you know what I mean? Like maybe land sovereignty, like us viewing like I guess it's like my thing is like viewing their tools as a solution to a problem that is a problem is like, we can talk about those things, but it's like, I'm going to be honest, like, I'm just like tired of having these conversations about things that we are totally not in control of, you know, Mm -hmm. because we live these live this passive lives where like our tools for existence seem to have been stripped away from us, but they haven't, we still own them, we could do what we need to do now. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we could talk about like international investors and the economy falling apart. When we talk about economy, who's the economy for? Not for me. When the economy does well, who's like, like, are people's lives that much better? The people who are really vulnerable? I'll tell you, when we were poor, the economy did better. I didn't feel it. I didn't see it. We're still struggling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think the reality increasingly, though, is there's not a choice, <laughs> right? So like, if you want to live a different way, great, cool. We're going to have to. If you don't, tough. <laughs> Because yeah. you're going to have to. Like, there, whether we're talking about the ecological situation, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a dynamic in which capitalism is destroying itself and us, exactly. or we look at the financial situation in which capitalism is literally eating itself from the back up, right? When we see those things, eventually there is a point of irrecoverability. And we are reaching that inflection point very quickly. Right. Like when the Norfolk Southern train derailed in East Palestine, one of the things they said was, you know, I live in the Rust Belt and I can tell you what happens when capitalism fails. Right. And that is our reality going forward for everybody. Yeah. Absolutely. To embrace that reality. This, a crash like this might not be recoverable. Recoverable, I guess I will ask in what sense, because with Norfolk Southern, what you were talking about when um, the people of that town needed help, uh, Palestine, mm-hmm. East Palestine needed help, who came, who, who showed up, who came, who came through? Yeah, all the mutual aid groups. Yeah, I mean, recover in the sense of capitalism cannot continue to function, 
Well, let me um, die then. Has an economic like, structure. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's. Should, are we crying over that, or are we like, what do we do? I mean, I know that the, the immediate consequences are going to be really, really bad, but I think that this is a time to have certain conversations. Like, what do we do if the way we used to mm-hmm. live is no longer a choice? Like, people are already doing that now. There are people who survive outside of capitalism right now because capitalism has rejected yes. them, and like, they're not even allowed to participate. They still mm-hmm. survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do they do that? Like, I think these are questions that we should ask. Like, I was reading this thing about, like, we know, like, um, what like, indigenous uh, populations make up, like, what, 5%, less than 5% of the world population, but protect, like, 80%. Like yeah. But it's like, they live differently. Yeah, we have to, I mean, again, this isn't, this will never, can can never be a question, again, of, you know, how do we bail the economy out? Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, like, Partially for me, like, let it die. Not, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even if you wanted to save it, there might not be a way to. So the question has to change, right? So this is Mm -hmm. kind of the point I'm making. It's not a question of choice anymore. I would love for capitalism to collapse. But even for those that don't want that to happen, we already have to start having these conversations whether or not it's a desirable outcome for you. Are you going to tell them that? Are you going to tell them that? I don't think think they want to hear it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't think they want to hear it either. But it it is increasingly our reality, right? Like if we do not have enough water to be able to continue to drink water, that is just a reality. And capitalist economics cannot survive in the midst of that. And so these are just increasingly, you know, I'm starting to think through what collapse means, right? And what that means increasingly to me is that Things that many people in the United States think of as political choices, things like whether or not we engage in capitalist economics or, you know, militarism or things like this. These are sort of things which are assumed to continue perpetually as the conditions for any kind of conversation. And so, of course, every conversation about how to deal with crisis replicates those terms. But increasingly, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing that not be the case. And I'm starting to see a lot more things like a crisis happens. What do we do? We go get a mutual aid structure together. We go raise some money if we can, and we go drop supplies off and we start organizing. Like that's what we do, right? That's a reasonable response to crisis. In a you know self-contained period of time, I think the thing that we need to figure out is what does that look like as life, right? What does it look like at the point where life is just crisis, which is not a far-flung future from now. Well, I mean, it's happening to people now. There are people now whose yeah. lives are constant crisis, right? Like, this yeah. is not, like, some some weird... It's, like, it's not, like... It, it just seems scary because, oh, it's going to be happening here. It's not supposed to be happening here. People, people like, there are people whose lives are crisis, right? Like, and mm-hmm. they find a way to do it. Like, I remember when I was growing up, when I was in Kenya, my mom used to have, like, monthly fundraisers of, like, people just coming together and raising funds and giving it to the, per- the per- giving the money to the person who needed it the most. Like, my, my, my grandpa used to grow mangoes in, like, the village. And when we used to go there, we used to come back to the city and just, like, give that stuff away to people. Like, there are people who know how, how to live outside capitalism because capitalism yeah. has never allowed them in. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. right now we're trying to answer questions that somebody else has already answered. It's already mm-hmm. being talked about because people are already doing it. I think we just need to get out of this whole, like, um, I think Western-centric idea of, like, the way people live their lives. And even not even Western-centric. I'm going to take that back. Because vulnerable people in the West live differently because they don't have a yeah. choice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, again, so, I mean, you see this in the Rust Belt. Like, this, yeah. this is where experiments like that are happening. And... Why are they happening in places like that as opposed to Oklahoma or something? <laughs> um, 
it's because people in the Rust Belt don't have choice, right? Yeah. Like the economy abandoned them and they had to figure something else out. Now you can find that with like a traditional history of class consciousness and the fact that class conflict has really typified a lot of life in that part of the country for a long time. And of course, people kind of, a lot of them try to figure out how to go their own way, but whether or not that's choice, it's necessity, right? Yeah. And so in that situation, people figured stuff out. I mean, there's many people in Rust Belt cities that live kind of with one foot in capitalism and one foot outside of it. Um, it's a really normal way to exist in a context like that, where things like mutual aid become ways the whole communities function, right? Yeah. Um, these are the places where we have to look. I, th- these are the margins, right? Like in desert, they talk about how in crisis, you know, the real political experimental space moves out to the margins, right? Mm-hmm. But the margins are not geographic necessarily. Um, so like the margins in the Rust Belt are sometimes internal to a city, mm-hmm. right? Go to St. Louis, like you go to St. Louis and there are literally communities that were built as all white gated communities in the middle of the city that were built as outposts for white supremacy in the middle of black neighborhoods. Not even it's like kidding. A settler. It's like settlers. Um, it it's like literally was. They yeah. thought of themselves that way too. And so you have structures like that in the middle of Rust Belt cities, but that doesn't mean that that isn't also the margin. And so when we're thinking through this, it is the case that we have to increasingly look at what's happening in these, what are considered economically marginal spaces, because that is where things are actually occurring, right? That is where we're going to learn how to live if we haven't already. Yeah. And I think we really, really need to talk about land back, like seriously, Mm -hmm. like seriously, very, very seriously, because we cannot have these colonizers and imperialists having domain over land. Like there's, we don't have, we don't have rights to public space. Like you can't even like go have a party outside or like throw down, like down the street because the government owns everything. Like, so like that idea alone is like, we don't even, we don't own anything. Our lives Mm -hmm. and bodies, everything, all parts of our existence belong to the state, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. I mean, I think about it and I was like, I don't think we can, we can move away from capitalism without land back. I'm going to like, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm open to anybody giving me any other ideas, but I just don't see a way out. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's, there's a much bigger conversation about what does even property mean <laughs> at yeah. the end of capitalism? What does ownership mean? Like that whole structure collapses as well, right? It changes yeah. the terms of conversations like that inherently, but you're right. I mean, like what changes, Right. And this is like basic Marx, like 101, right? Capitalism functions by displacing use value into exchange value. And therefore, the destruction of capitalism is this kind of reinscription of use value. What that means is that really the goal is resources, right? We have to figure out how to survive. And we have to figure out how to do that, hopefully comfortably, right? But that's not a question of money at that point. It becomes yeah. a question of access to resources, right? Which then the terms of that change completely, Right. And so those kinds of conversations are absolutely critical because they start to point the way out into something else, I think. Yeah, because if you if you start having conversations mm-hmm. about money, coupons that they made up to control us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If your teacher mm-hmm. is giving out coupons for good behavior and like people don't want to behave well anymore and they walk away from the teacher, that's the only way you end it. You don't end it by trying to get the coupons like the coupons are not real. What's real is you. What's real is your community. What's real is like. I don't know, getting high and hanging out with your friends, that's real. You know what I mean? Like, it's like the coupons that they print are not, I always say that they, they teach us this stuff in school, like supply and demand and mm-hmm. market forces so that they can use that to trick us later. Because if somebody told you somebody was starving because of supply and demand, you'd be like, um, and you did not know what that was, you'd be like, what? But I see food being thrown away. What are you talking about? Yeah. But I see yeah. you tossing clothes away. What are you talking about? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, in 2008, when I was trying to understand what happened. So, you know, trying to understand the idea that things took on value without having value simply mm-hmm. because other people wanted them. And then that mm-hmm. whole structure fell apart. And then that somehow impacted my life. Like that reality, right? Took a while for me to understand, really. I mean, it is a complicated sort of economic series of events. But one of the things I did to understand that was I went back and actually studied the history of money. And interestingly enough, you know, I mean, yeah, there's all of these kind of like bull, you know, capitalist libertarians that are like, money is inherent and we've always done this. And it was shells before it was. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Money was created to control us from the get, from the beginning. That's always been its only purpose. Yeah, it's total bullshit. And so even Milton Friedman, right, the godfather of neoliberalism, talks about this in, in oh, what is it called? I'm forgetting the name of the book, but he wrote a book about monetary history. And essentially what he says is like, money is two things functionally. It is a token that we give value to, and it's a structure of economic control. That's what exactly. it is. Exactly. If we stop giving it value, exactly. the role in economic control can't function. And nope. so therefore money is purely a social thing. What happened- What happened in 2008, which is amazing, it's not that assets lost value. It's that you couldn't value them anymore. Mm -hmm. You couldn't say in 10 years, this bank of mortgages was going to pay off at this rate. Therefore, you couldn't put a value on it. That money vanished. It didn't shrink. It vanished. It disappeared because it wasn't there to begin with. Because it's not real. (laughs) Right. And so as we're going through these things, like really thinking through the absurdity of that, the fact that that occurs and all of a sudden, like my friend's parents can't retire and everyone gets their homes foreclosed on. Like that reality is absurd. Absolutely. Regardless of its level of success, (laughs) it is absurd. Absolutely. Well, it's absurd because, well, we can just go back to the basics of it. You're a human. What do humans need to live? Yeah. Space, land. Mm -hmm. If you take away that land and you say, if you own land and humans can't live on it, then what do those humans have to do to exist? I mean, that's just slavery. You're like through property rights, through private property, the state just creates slavery and then has corporations plunder people who live on that land because human beings have to live on land. And if you say that they can't own the land that they live on naturally by naturally existing, you're automatically submitting them to slavery automatically. This is what the diggers said. So like in the 17th century, the diggers, which were a, you know, British revolutionary organization, or I guess community would be the right way to put it. Um, This was before land enclosure. So this was at a point in which land was held feudally. And so like feudal lords would own these huge estates, right? Not on paper, not in the way that we understand ownership now, but ownership more in the sense of like sovereignty over land, right? Like they had the ability to determine what happened in that space. Mm. And so the diggers were going around and finding all this land that wasn't being used. They themselves, many of them were exiled from communities for political activity by these feudal lords. They banded together and they would just start squatting stuff. And they would take over like a whole chunk of land and just build a town there. (laughs) And then the military would come in and burn the town down and they'd go back and they'd build another town somewhere else. And then land enclosure happened, meaning that all of a sudden property became private property, right? And many, many, many people, thousands of people got kicked out of their towns, off of the estates that they lived on and became sort of baseless, right? They 
wandered the countryside that fueled these kind of movements, right? And the core of those movements were this exact idea. We don't need all of this economy thing you want to talk about. Mercantilism and money. And what is the point of any of that? Really, what we need is we need a place to live and a way to eat food. And then we need a community that's supportive. That's what we need. And that's it. And we have that. We have that already. We We can have that. Like, we don't need, like, all this stuff. Like, I always, the the wildest thing, do you remember, like, when they taught us tragedy of the commons? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And they were like, oh, if land is not privately owned, it'll be destroyed by people Mm -hmm. who just want to use it. And I'm like, "Uh, no, because land is privately owned now and you're destroying everything. It's like from the beginning, they teach us not to trust ourselves. So we, we, Mm -hmm. we feel like we need them. But everything we have, we need. Like, we have each other. We just need to like get our back that they took. Yeah. Well, and it is a taking. I think that that's actually yeah. the really important part, right? Like yeah. if we really think of history and, and again, this is, and maybe this is very clear to me as someone who grew up in a place where workers really did build everything. Um, we all build everything. <laughs> like we build everything collectively as people, right? We this do. world is collectively constructed. History is collectively constructed. And then that is privatized in capitalism. That's exactly. that. That is, is theft. theft. Well, they're right? stealing. That they're is stealing absolutely from theft. us every day. They steal yep. our time. They steal our space. They, they steal everything. I mean, this mm-hmm. is Perdown, right? Property is theft. I mean, it goes back to the roots of anarchist theory. Let me um, ask Let me ask one other big question, though. So let's say this whole problem within tech continues. And <laughs> I like that we're like, but let's talk about the actual thing we're talking about. <laughs> And like, uh, you know, it seems like there, there might be more problems within the wider economy. What do you think that means for inflation and for like, you know, food, gas prices? Uh, Is that going to continue to rise? This is a wonderful question. Are we going to see like a double thing where we'll continue to see inflation go up as the economy gets worse? Because I mean, that would be like. And to add to that, does that mean that we all have permission to steal? (laughs) We always all have permission to steal. (laughs) Um, So. Okay, so the effects of this could get a little interesting. I mean, when we start to think about, you know, the cascading effects, we really have to start to think about, like, what is the general state of the economy? Why is inflation happening? And why is the Federal Reserve doing what they're doing to stop that, right? Which is raising interest rates. So this is like econ 101 stuff, but essentially monetary value right now, right, is based on supply and demand just like any other commodity, right? Just like gold or coal or whatever. It's based on supply and demand. And so if I want to do business in the United States, I do that in dollars. That creates demand for dollars, right? For example. Now, when the government is essentially creating money, right? When they're kind of borrowing money from the financial industry to engage in these kind of big public subsidy programs, what's happening is the money supply is expanding, right? Fractional reserve banking is a really crazy idea in the sense that, say I have $100 and one of you all comes in and borrows $10 from me and I give you that $10 and you're going to give me you know 20% interest. So I'm going to get $12 back. Now on paper, I own $112. I just created $12 out of nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because on paper it exists. And that's how fractional reserve banking works. That's how the entirety of debt in capitalism functions is through this process of creating money out of nothingness, right? And so banks literally print money. That is when you're getting licensed as a bank, part of what 
that license allows you to do is engage in fractional reserve banking like this. And so you're creating money. You're just printing it out of nothingness. But at a certain point, when the money supply gets big enough, that when it interacts with demand makes that money worth less. And so in a consumer economy like the United States, where we're purchasing a lot of things from, you know, that weren't produced domestically necessarily. That means that those things now cost more money, right? That means that that starts to cascade down through the economy. So like to run a farm now costs more money, which means our food costs more money, right? So on, so on, so on. And so to prevent that from happening, what the Federal Reserve Bank will do and this is a really standard Federal Reserve thing, is they'll raise interest rates, usually at a quarter percent a meeting, which is what they've been doing for somewhat of a while. The point of that is to make borrowing money more expensive, which then makes it less likely, likely that people are going to borrow money, which means that the money supply will shrink and demand will go up and the price of the currency will stabilize. That's the idea. That's the concept. And all of that sounds wonderful on paper, like it all within the assumptions of economics, all that works, except economics isn't life. And so when we really start to think about what that means, let's look at, I think it was 1979, 1980, the Volcker shock. So Paul Volcker was the head of the Federal Reserve Bank back then. And there had been stagflation in the United States. So like there had been inflation without any economic growth. And that's what happens in a situation in which the economic conditions would otherwise lead to a recession, but the government is kind of artificially supporting the economy, which is exactly what's happening now, right? That's what's exactly what's happening? happening now. Isn't that what's always happening though? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just getting like, goofy, but like, isn't it? Like the government is always artificially supporting the economy, right? Yes, but in a sense in which the debt is going up and things are getting more expensive, but there's no economic growth to offset that. And so that just means everyone gets poorer, <laughs> Right? Like yeah. everybody. And so Paul Volcker decides to take interest rates, which I think we're at like one and a half percent, and jack them up to 20% overnight. It crashed the American economy, which was the point. And in the process of that, just to give you an idea of what the long term effects of something like that are, if any of you have ever heard of junk bonds, right? The mergers and acquisitions market, where uh, investors come in and they buy struggling companies for next to nothing. And then they gut them and sell all the stuff and fire the employees that started as a result of this, that started directly as a result of this. So he did <laughs> and, it intentionally. And so, yeah, I mean, that was the intended effect. The intended yeah. effect was to, as he put, get rid of the rot in the economy. Right. Um, now that rot also meant that like people didn't have jobs anymore. <laughs> and that's fundamentally what kickstarted the dynamic that, a lot of us live in now, which is we are existing in a situation where our wages are going up and not the same rate as the cost of living. That started during this period of time as well, because of course, when you fire a bunch of people, there's a glut of possible employees and not enough jobs. And so people get paid less, right? Like all of that was very intentional. Like what we're seeing now is a smaller version of that, right? It's a less intensive version of that in which they're trying to keep interest rates at what they consider to be a sustainable but high rate as a way to curtail like some lending, not all, but some. Now the problem is again, what does that mean? So let's think about how in the United States currently people are surviving, many of them. They're not surviving just off their wages because you can't, but they're paying bills on credit cards, right? They're buying clothes for their kids on credit cards. You know, they're buying groceries with credit cards and they're paying those back later. When the interest rates go up, 
that now becomes more expensive. That doesn't just damage people today, but it guts their ability to be financially stable in the future. That's the real cost of that, right? And so when interest rate hikes happen, what economists have been able to see is in the short term, that will end inflation, but the long-term social and economic costs of that are catastrophic, absolutely catastrophic, right? That dynamic is what we exist in now, right? Where we can see the catastrophe, we can see it rolling. And at least part of that is an attempt by the Federal Reserve to stabilize numbers on paper, literally just numbers on paper to make it look like things are balanced, right? As opposed to, you know, lending being out of control and so on, so on, so on. But again, the reality of that is people can't pay their bills and can't buy clothes and shoes for their kids and stuff. Enjoying this podcast and want to support It's Going Down so we can continue to crank out more content? It's easy. Go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or the menu version on mobile that says support IGD and then you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. Without your support, IGD doesn't continue. So if you appreciate our work, please consider supporting us. Again, go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or on the menu version of mobile that says support IGD. And you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. You can also find the link in our Collectiva social media account and in the show notes of this podcast on itsgoingdown.org. And now, back to the show. But don't you think this is just an attempt to make people more desperate? Like, I know we can talk about these numbers and numbers on paper, but like at the end of the day, the Fed and like the government do work for corporations and corporations work and are suited best when people are the most desperate. Like, I always think about the productivity and wages graph. What was that from the 1990s, 1980s, when like wages, uh, productivity increase and wages stagnated? Um, And like, so when we talk about these things and we talk about these actors, like they're objective, they're not objective because the goal is always to make workers more desperate and make them work mm-hmm. more. So like, I always think about like, you know, when people, we talk about the inflation that started now, like let's not forget that companies are making record profits. Do yes, you know what I exactly. mean? Like the car yes. deal, like the grocery company, mm-hmm. like they're making record profits. Mm-hmm. Why is mm-hmm. that? Because you're raising prices. So this whole idea of inflation that is just happening, it's not just happening. They're causing it. Yes. Like yes. it's not related. Like these products are not increasing in price because you're, as you said, all of a sudden, like all this, it's like they are just raising prices. And I do think this is a reaction. I will say this of people like quiet quitting and like unionizing and like workers not being as desperate because they were getting all that COVID money. And now they're like, well, you know what? Guess what causes workers to work at like slave, like enslaved wages, you know? And like, well, yeah, yeah there's, I mean, a thing, there's a thing called, I forget the exact term, but it's essentially the acceptable unemployment number that is assumed to exist in a healthy economy. At the Uni- in the United States, I think it's like 4% or 5% of people are unemployed in a healthy economy. Why would that be? Well, that's exactly what you're talking about. What is a healthy economy, quote unquote, to an economist? It's one that's profitable. It's one that's profitable to corporations, right? Not to people. So it's like, at the end of the day, the economy is run for... That's why when people say the economy, the economy is like, well, the economy is not for me. So why should I care about it? But I I mean, I I, I really value everything you've said. I guess the one thing that I did want to say is like, at the end of the day, people need to understand like, they're doing this intentionally. It's not Mm -hmm. like God, like a tornado that came or like a hurricane, like, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. How did did Shaq say it? Stop hunting to animal cruelty. Um, these are people and they have names and addresses. 
Yeah. Right? Like, that's a reality. Like, these people live in Washington, D.C. <laughs> you know, and Jerome Powell this. lives in Georgetown, you know, yeah. and they're doing this. Now, intentionally, yes, absolutely. I think what's happening here is there's not even a process of questioning the assumptions. That never happens. And economics is a self-contained universe where things make sense in relation to each other, but they don't make sense outside of that. And what we're living through in these moments is really a kind of economic hegemony that is being supported by policing. Like what is property? Like what is property? Property exists to the degree that I can't just walk into the grocery store and take stuff. Why can't I walk into the grocery store and take stuff? Because there's cops there, you know? But, but, but the government forces me to have my time stolen to get a place to live. Isn't that funny? How like stealing is only okay if you're Jeff Bezos. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and so we end up with these situations in which that intentional reinforcement of that is almost implicit. It's not even consciously thought. It's almost implicit just in the assumptions of how everything functions, right? And this is why like major systemic change becomes fundamentally important because it's not a question of whether the economy is surviving or not or profitable or not. The reality is, is that capitalist economics existing at all, having hegemony over our space at all. Yep. Structures our lives in ways which fundamentally involve us being separated from the conditions of our own existence. And we can see that really clearly in moments of economic crisis when we exactly. need food, but we can't get it, even though the shelves are full. Right. I just think we should be very clear that if we're entering a period in which, you know, everyone, I mean, we were just talking about before we were recording, you know, the realities of the housing market, rent is still rising uh food stuff the price is just going up and up i mean uh, i was just buying groceries online the other day and like it just went up another you know 50 cents or whatever i mean it continues to rise like if you've seen the price of eggs you know all that stuff if that compounds with the fact that people are getting like laid off and that trickles out throughout the economy and you can't even get on like unemployment i mean that's going to cause some <laughs> real real rage within uh the population you know that's gonna really mess some people's lives up i mean that's gonna be like you know thousands of people you know being pushed into their cars uh you know to live uh it's really gonna some people's lives up so well and i think that raises the fundamental question right which is do we allow collapse to happen or do we make collapse happen (laughs) Right. In other words, do we allow this to be an intentional process, right? In which capitalism falls apart and we regain control of our lives, right? Because if we continue to bail the economy out over and over and over again, if we continue to like exist in a world where all of these absurdities are present, um, we are consciously, constantly going to be stuck in a situation in which we are precarious, always. And if we ever want to end that precarity that involves having control over the conditions of our lives, which we do not have now. And again, you can see this in moments of economic crisis. You can see this in places like the Rust Belt where capitalism has abandoned people and now everyone's had to figure out other ways to live, or at least partially, right? That these were situations foisted upon people that people then made sense of and figured out. But at the same time, there is still this tendency within this discourse to try and revive the economy. And we need to abandon that, right? We're hitting a point where economic crisis actually is a thing that we can see being incipient. 
And we have to address that not from the perspective of how are we going to weather this crisis for when it gets better? We have to approach it from the perspective of what can we take from this crisis as lessons for how to live differently? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. Like, absolutely. I wouldn't even imagine. Yeah, that's, that's, that's gotta be it. Like, and like, I think the best thing that all of us can do is stop listening to the, to the preachers of capitalism. I'm talking about corporate media because the solutions that they're going to give us from now is going to be lies and lies and more lies. And I think we just like, remember that like, we need to listen to each other because we have the answers and we have what we need. You know what I mean? It's like, we're constantly being tricked and we keep like, we keep falling for it, you know? This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.